Peace and love. You are now listening to Adult Public Health Podcast. I'm your host, Demonte. So as always, this space is one in which that is safe, where we lead with grace, and we are always open to learning. So with that, I am joined by special guest, Andrea. Thanks. Thank you so much. How are you? And thanks for joining today. I'm well. Thank you for having me. I apologize in advance if I cough a little bit because I'm a little under the weather. So and if I sound a little contested, I do apologize, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. So, like, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to see, you know, and Andrew, you're 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 a lawyer and I know you have, you know, your your expertise is not just in one particular field. But like, I kind of want to start just like what even uh, what was that that piqued your interest and made you want to maybe consider, hey, this is what I want to do for a living. So I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be an attorney and my family, specifically my mother, fostered that idea. Um, So probably in elementary school, I started saying I wanted I wanted to be an attorney. And so my mom would say, you know, this is my this is my future attorney. So it was kind of put in me at a very early age because that's what I said I wanted to do. So my family really encouraged that. And so. Yeah. So I knew, you know, I went to, you know, I graduated high school, went to undergrad and I knew right after undergrad, the the goal was law school. So I went right to law school after undergrad. Wow. And what was it that, you know, like that made you at a young age and you said, this is what I wanted to do. What 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 was it that drew you to the to, to the idea of being an attorney? So honestly, I don't even know if I really understood what being an attorney was. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was something cool to do. The older I got, I understood more what that was. And it it was more something that I just I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to to make a difference. I wanted to be able to help people. And I I've, I've gone through various phases. When I first went to law school, because I was heavily into sports, I played sports my entire life growing up, mm-hmm. played AAU basketball, all of that stuff. Initially, I wanted to do sports law. And so when I first went into law school, I took sports law classes and I thought that's what I wanted to do. Okay. Somewhere along the line, I took an income tax class and I started getting into tax law. Um, And I finished my Juris Doctor degree in 2003, which is, you know, basically the general law degree. And then I went on to a second school, a second law school, and I have a master's of law degree in LLM and tax law. I became in, inundated with tax law and it became very interesting to me. And and tax law is not what people typically would think it is. You deal with corporate structure, you deal with partnerships, you deal with mergers and acquisitions, you deal with nonprofits, you deal with wealth management and planning. And then you also deal with what people typically think of mm-hmm. is income tax. But when you when you go into this arena of tax law, it's so much stuff there is so much to unpack it's not just what you would typically think like oh this is dealing with 1040s as a matter of fact people often call me and ask me about stuff regarding 1040s and at the time I didn't have a lot of knowledge about 1040s now I have a lot more knowledge about 1040s but when I started working in the tax field I was doing more um, estate and gift tax planning, looking at wills, looking at trusts, looking at estate planning devices. Wow. Awesome. So like with that being said, so I mean, I mean, definitely, 
you have the drive where, you know, not only get one degree, then you go back and get another. What was that experience like? You know, I think, you know, living in the country, the United States of America, you know, it's like there's a lot of different things and ideas and thoughts. So it's like, you know, per- perceived barriers. What was your experience while 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 going through this and pursuing your education? So what I'll say is I went to an HBCU law school for my first law degree. I went to um, Texas Southern University, Thurgood Marshall School of Law. And I went to a PWI undergrad. And so moving from that into an HBCU, it was very it was very nice to see people who looked like me, um, had similar backgrounds as I did, came from, you know, families like I came from, who were all kind of merging on this same path. We were all trying to become attorneys. So the experience for law school was a, was a really good experience. Most of my professors looked like me, had similar experiences as I did. And that was something that I was not used to in my prior educational pursuits from, you know, elementary through high school to even undergrad. Mm -hmm. It was very rare that I was around a lot of people who were very similar as, as I. And so it was a good experience and it was a bad experience at the same time. So you dealt with some things that unfortunately at you know, that you don't always at a PWI that you had to deal with at an HBCU because they don't have all of the same resources. I remember being in law school and going to clinics and competitions and people would sometimes look down on us because we came from HBCUs or people think that, you know, oh, you went there because that was your last option. You didn't get into anywhere else. And that's really not true. Specifically for myself, I got into several law schools. I chose to go to an mm-hmm. HBCU. That was where I wanted to go. I chose this location. I chose this school. So, but I also remember going to those same competitions and me and my classmates showing out and we were the best people there. So we were able to break some of those stereotypes, but it's it's just unfortunate that, and that was in, I started law school in 2000. I finished in my first law degree in 2003. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate that we live in a country that even in 2000, you still have to break down these barriers yeah. because people have these assumptions about who you are based off of not just what you look like, mm-hmm. but the institution that you attended. Wow. Yeah, and no, I just really appreciate you saying that because, I mean, the work is the work and you still had to do the work. You had to, you know, it's not just, you know, congrats, you graduated, you're a lawyer. There's more that goes into So like, even like with that, like what are some of the other things? Like, you know, let's just say somebody's listening and they're maybe considering it or maybe their child is talking to them about, you know, hey, mom, hey, dad, I, I, I want to go to school to be a lawyer. Like what are some of the things that like, okay, you spoke undergrad and then you spoke, you know, then you went to this HBCU to, to get your first degree. What else comes after that? Like, as far as like, you know, you know, like for example. Well, I, I, I want to even step back. Okay. Yeah, I want to even step back a little further. I think that one of the things that we have to do in our, in our communities is we have to figure out what our kids want to do and we have to encourage that. Mm. So that's the first thing that my family did. They really encouraged me. Okay. Um, and 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 made me believe, even if nobody else believed in me, that my family believed in me, wow. that this was something that I could do. A lot of times our kids grow up in these systems and they go to these schools where teachers are overworked 
and they don't get the support and the encouragement that they need. So I think it starts there, that it has to come from, like you know, that. somebody who cares about them mm -hmm. and really wants to foster that 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 energy to keep going and to pushing it. Sometimes that is a teacher, but a lot of times that's that's somebody from your home. Yeah. So I think I think that that has to happen. You have to do well in school. I, I have I have some great nephews. One is nine and one is five. And they they're already saying they don't like to read. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, almost anything that you do educationally, you're going to have to read. You're going to have to put forth that effort. And what I can tell you is anyone who wants to be an attorney, law school is a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. um, if I could show you these books that I have, because I still have most of my law school books, they're huge. And you read a lot. I remember being in law school and per class having to read, you know, anywhere from 75 to 150 pages per night per class. Wow. So you have to do a lot of reading. You have to be you have to be well-versed in writing. You have to be able to speak well mm -hmm. and to talk well and to understand, you know, one of the things I think that our communities suffer is we don't help our kids with that kind of stuff. We support sports and I'm not knocking sports because like I said, I played sports. I played AAU basketball from probably third grade through high school. So I'm not knocking sports. I think sports are amazing and they, they give our kids so much. But just like we support our kids with sports, we have to support their academics. Yeah. They have to understand that it's okay to be that nerdy kid yeah. because we have in our culture, in our communities, this stigmatism that, you know, you don't want to be smart, yes. but it's okay to be smart. It's okay to be, it's okay to be athletic and it's okay to be smart. It's okay to combine both of those things mm -hmm. and go far in life. So I think that I think that we have to do a better job with that. And 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 then again, once once you figure out what your kid wants to do, you have to support that and you have to push that so that they understand that it's okay to want to do this. Yeah. Another thing that I wish I had, I didn't know anybody. When I went to law school, I didn't know any attorneys. I didn't, I didn't have any, there were no attorneys in my family. Now I think two of my cousins have also gone to law school since I went okay. um, and become attorneys, but I didn't know anybody. So when I went to law school, there was nobody who could kind of help me out and tell me these are, this is what you should expect. These are the things that you want to do. Mm -hmm. And so I missed opportunities because I didn't know. So I think it's always good once you figure out whether it's an attorney, whether it's a doctor, whether it's an engineer, whatever it is that your kid wants to do, try to find somebody who is doing that, that your child can connect with at a very early age so that they can kind of see what it's like. The other thing that I'll say is I think sometimes we get a false sense of what some of these careers are and specifically being an attorney Yes, um, because we see on television and we see the people in the nice suits and they live in these penthouse apartments and it, it appears that they're doing very well. What I'll say is most attorneys don't live like a lot of my classmates after they came out of law school, if they didn't find a job at one of the top law firms, if they weren't able to get into a governmental agency, they had to hang their shingle and they had to try and figure this out on their own. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them struggled very hard in those early years just trying to make ends meet. Yeah. Um, so I think that you have to, I think that you have to go into this 
because you have a passion for this and not just because I saw something on TV and I want to be able to dress nice and I want to have that that money and that fancy car because that's very Hollywood and that's not what the profession is all about. I really appreciate that because you're just kind of like really normalizing it. And, you know, we as consumers of, you know, social media, television, we are often, we see a lot of different things romanticized that don't necessarily mirror the world in which we live in. You know, and with the different things you said, you know, like, okay, I have the support of my family. They truly believe in me. And now I believe, and this is what I want. Talk to me about the level of discipline that it takes. Like you, you mentioned, hey, per class, 75 to 100 pages a night. How did you acquire this discipline? So for me, it was, I'm going to tell you, law school was hard for me when I first came to law school. I was that student in high school that didn't have to study. Okay. And I graduated with a four point plus GPA. And then I got to undergrad and I didn't want to study because I wanted to party and have fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did okay. And I graduated with, you know, 3.3.0 GPA, decent, mm-hmm. not, not as good as it could have been, but decent com- comparatively. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time I got to law school and what I'll say is by the time you get to law school, everybody's smart. Mm. These are the smartest people from all around. These are the kids that were smart in their high school. These are the kids that were smart in undergrad. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you're not the smartest person anymore. And one of the things that I did not know how to do was study. And for, for me, what saved me was quickly I realized my my deficiency Okay. And I found a group and it was three of us and we studied together and it was a good number because we held each other accountable. We studied together every night and it worked. Mm-hmm. So what I'll say is one of the things that you have to figure out is, you know, you have to understand what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. For me, I understood that studying was a weakness for me because it was something that was foreign to me because I was always just the smartest one. And I didn't have to put forth a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. Like I could just sit in class and listen to the lecture and I didn't have to study outside of class. Now, all of a sudden, I have to study outside of class. Now, all of a sudden, I have to read and prepare outside of class. Wow. Yeah, that that's super. That's so important because like, you know, talking to and working with a lot of youth and like you can see that. And I often do that same analogy, like as you brought up sports earlier and, you know, I'm a sports guy. We're we're both basketball folks. And what is still iconic, for example, that Allen Iverson quote, we're talking about practice. Well, right. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about practice. It, it definitely it takes that level of discipline and, you know, to, to put that time in to get to get to where you, you know, where you ultimately are. So so in preparing for our conversation, I'm just looking just like, you know, you know, like you said, you you had professors that looked like you, classmates that looked like you. Now you have entered the workforce. And it looks like, you know, the stats that I was able to, able to get my hands on, it says like, you know, African-American attorneys within the United States, roughly 5%, possibly less. Is that how? That's probably how, pretty accurate. Really? That's still, probably, yeah, that's probably pretty, pretty accurate. accurate. Wow. I think so. And and you you have several HBCUs that have law schools, 
But what I will say is that what you would think is that it's it's just only minorities, right? At these HBCUs, but it's not. You actually get quite a quite a mix. But for me, it was still more people that looked like me than the, at the other institutions when I was sitting in class. Sure. So I remember my first job, and I worked for an agency in the state of Texas as a public defender for people who were incarcerated in Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And I think there was a manager there who was an African-American man. Mm-hmm. And besides that, we probably had anywhere from 25 to 30 attorneys. And that was it as far as pretty much minority. Well, no, I think there were two men. Mm-hmm. And that was that was pretty much it as far as minorities. And when I started and then after I was there, I think there were a couple other people who were hired in women and men that kind of came and went. And I was at that agency for five years. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, then I I went to another agency in a federal government position and out of a group of probably 15 to 20 people, I was the only Mm African-American. And in my current position where I work, Mm -hmm. I am the only African-American attorney. We may have some support staff that are African-American or that are some other minority group. But as far as attorneys, that's it. Sure. And like, you know, like I'm on the outside looking in, you know, you, you did what you did to, to get to where you are. So like the, you know, the perception is, you know, like there, it, it's difficult because you're working in an environment where, you know, you are one of the few that look like you. Is that necessarily accurate? You know, I, I just... One of the things I'm, I want to do my best with this platform is just to try to help normalize things for black and brown people that might be considering these professions and, you know, that maybe like, you know, have some misconceptions about what working in this space looks like. So I think that, I think that working in this space, like working in any space, any professional space as an African-American person, there are challenges. Okay. There are times where I feel like I have to pull back or I have to tone myself down some Mm -hmm. because I don't want to be the angry black woman in the office. Okay. And I know that certain things, if I say them the way I want to say them will be taken wrong. I took a course recently and it was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it talked about how as minorities that we have to work with a mask mm-hmm. and that we often are masked mm-hmm. and the struggles of working masked and that other people who don't have to work masked don't really understand what that is or how that feels. Yes. And so when you imagine your work life, you probably spend more time at work than you do any place else during the day awake. So imagine, you know, being at work eight hours, 10 hours a day and the whole time feeling like you just can't be yourself. You have to do a mask of who you are. It's a challenge. But what I say is we have to learn how to balance Mm -hmm. and you have to know what battles are battles you need to fight and which battles you can say, hey, I could just walk away from this. This this is not that big of a deal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a long time ago, I was told you teach people how to treat you. And I think right. even in the work environment, you teach people how to treat you. And so if you're okay with being stepped on and pushed aside every single time, that people will continue to do that. Mm-hmm. But if you if you mandate that people have to respect you, and there's a way to do that and to still be professional mm-hmm. and to not lose your professionalism. I feel like there have been times in my career where I've been challenged simply because I'm an African-American woman. Mm-hmm. And I know that they wouldn't have challenged somebody else. I, I remember specifically working an opposing counsel called me to the carpet on something and said, you know, I think you need more training. And here I sit with two law degrees, a, a, a bachelor's degree, two law degrees and a master's of business administration. Wow. And this person didn't even have a law degree. Oh my God. Um, and he was telling me that I didn't know my job and I needed more training. Mm. And I took it and it was an older gentleman, probably almost 70 something years old, a Caucasian man. Mm -hmm. And ironically, he decided that he wanted to have a manager's conference. He wanted to meet with my manager. I said, very well, talk to my manager, set up the manager's conference. And so we proceed to his office and to his surprise, my manager is another African-American woman. (laughs) And the shock on this man's face when we walked in this office and I think at that point, he just decided he gave up and yeah. he just decided, you know, hey, I'm going to stop trying to push on this. But the reality is that I was right on the issue and I did what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I was thankful that I had a manager and I believe whether she was white or black or whatever, she still would have supported me. But I was thankful that I had a manager that supported me and that I've always been in situations where I've had managers who supported me, regardless of their their race or their background or their religious background or whatever, but always had people who supported me. The challenges have always come from the outside. Wow. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. And it's that's a really... That's a great way to see how, you know, just what what you said play out, you know, like as far as leading with grace, but at the same time teaching someone how to how to treat you. And I think also with what's been going on in in this country in particular over the last, let's just say, two years now, you know, and working in the space that I work in, you know, being part of a lot of, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives. I see more and more, and, and that I'm so happy that you bring that up, more and more that folks are like, you know what, I'm going to leave this mask. And, and I'm going to, because now there's this, I feel like this is the season, and this is, you know, one of the main purposes for this podcast is to, for us, working in all of our various spaces, which ultimately helps boost the the, the health equity for, for our country and for people that look like us, is, hey, I'm going to show you now how to treat me. So I, I just, I, I really, really appreciate that. You you spoke to, we talked a little bit prior to, you know, in the pre-production that you, you really do some, some emphasis on like wealth management. You know, with wealth management, there's that misconception. Oh, well, that sounds cool. I definitely want to get my affairs in order, but that's only for folks with money. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. One of my biggest pet peeves is when someone passes away Mm -hmm. and their family goes on social media and does a GoFundMe account to try and bury them. 
Okay. And let me explain to you why. Sure. Because one of the greatest tools that we have is insurance. Mm-hmm. Life insurance policies. It's a number one, it's a great way to transfer wealth tax-free. Mm. Um it's a great way to to give the next generation wealth. But it's an also a great way to make sure that when you leave this place, that your family is not here just left to grieve, but also trying to figure out how to put your affairs in order because you didn't take care of it before you left. And I know I'm probably going to get some hate for that comment because there are probably some people who really need the GoFundMe accounts. But so many times the GoFundMe accounts that I see are from the same people who I see and they were in the club and they were taking trips and they were doing this and they were doing that. And I'm like, you could have taken just a smidgen of that money okay. and set it aside and got a policy and made sure that you were taken care of. So now your family's not here trying to figure that out. So that's, that's, let me, I, I just needed to get that out. That's no, that's I, one of my, I appreciate you saying that. And, and it's so ironically, an, another guest that I had on the, on the podcast was really, really educating me even more beyond the the basics of what you're talking about. And he said the exact same thing about, you know, this type of planning. He said it almost word for word. Mm -hmm. The best ways to transfer wealth tax-free. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that I tell people is basic stuff. If you have a home, if you have a bank account, those are things that you can plan for mm -hmm. before your death. What happens is when a person dies and they don't have a will and they don't have assets that go to a specific beneficiary, mm -hmm. they have to do probate. Probate means you have to go into the court and the court looks at all of your assets and they determine what you have, but they also determine what you owe as far as creditors. So your creditors, get your the creditors have the first bite at whatever is there. So, for example, if you have a home mm -hmm. and the home has, you know, $500,000 worth of equity in it and you're a husband and a wife in a community property state, half of that is the wife's and half of it is, is the husband on the first death. And they probably won't mess with the house at the first death. But then at the death of the second spouse, now that's just in her name mm -hmm. if he predeceased her. And that equity has increased now to say $600,000. Right. And there's a $100,000 mortgage left on the home. So there's $500,000 worth of equity. Mm -hmm. Well, if creditors come in and there's $400,000 worth of credit creditors, oh. those creditors will force the sale of the house yeah. to get their money and then the family is left with, what, $100,000. After probate court costs and attorney fees and stuff like that, it probably would be less than $50,000 left mm -hmm. for the family. Where if, if you have a home, what I say is make sure that you always have somebody else's name on that home. Mm -hmm. Because then you, you don't have to deal with the probate. If you have bank accounts, you can put a beneficiary on a bank account. And a lot of people don't know that. If you have a bank account, you can put a beneficiary on the bank account. And if something happens to you, that money goes to the beneficiary. And that money is not touchable by the creditors of the probate court. Wow. 
Yeah, that, um, and th- and that's a lo- that's so so valuable just to to hear because you know the assumption is that you know well I don't know or I don't know who I can call or to even look into these things, which you know then lead people down to like you said, kind of the GoFundMe situations because it's the only way because I I never received you know the financial education that I that I need. Right. Um, wills and trusts are amazing. More times than not, if if you have a if you have a a will, you may also need a trust. Okay. Depending on what your assets are, and there are so many different types of trusts. Oh, there there are hundreds and hundreds of different very to make sure that it achieves the purpose that you want. If you have some and you don't have a lot of assets, you may not need a trust. You might just need a will that provides for what you would like to see at your demise you how you want your how you want your assets whatever they are whether it's your rings your jewelry mm-hmm. wow. and what it does is it prevents your family from now having to argue and fuss and fight about who gets what sure because you've written it all out the other thing that i'll say it's nice to have a medical power of attorney. It's nice to have instructions on what you want to happen. If if you're if you stop breathing, mm-hmm. do you want to be resuscitated? Those are the things that you are able to plan for prior to, and you should plan for so that you don't put your family in this peculiar situation where now they have to try and figure out what your wishes are. At this um, time, trying to balance emotions. At the same time, trying to balance emotions. Hmm. I know my family has talked and we know who wants to be cremated, who doesn't want to be cremated. Those are hard questions that people don't want to have because they don't want to talk about death, but they're much needed questions and conversations that need to happen. Yeah. And I just, for me, there's a lot of value in that because, you know, even since doing this and, you know, trying to bring some of this knowledge just to the ears of people that look like us, there's, I'm starting to see that this conversation is more, it's starting to become more and more normalized, which is, I think, an amazing thing. So another question to add to that, so you say, okay, I should have a trust or at least have a will. Are there like any resources? It's like, okay, I don't know. I heard you guys talking on this podcast, but I I still kind of don't know where to start. What are some resources that folks like, okay, I don't have a lot of money for a, you know, a financial planner or X, Y, and Z. Are there some some resources that that maybe you can guide folks to or maybe help debunk some of those myths about the complexity of doing this? Um I I think that there there are some there are some resources out there. When you're talking about not a lot of wealth, not really high wealth, there's you don't have to go through the 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 search for the resources like somebody with high wealth. Okay. Um it it's a lot easier to find information. A simple Google search will provide you with some legitimate resources. One of the other things is that, you know, for example, your will, you can handwrite it. Mm. You don't have to go through it doesn't have to be uh, a whole lot of specific information, a lot of specific language. You could just handwrite it. A handwritten will is called a holographic will, mm-hmm. and that is valid as long as it's wi- it's 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 written, it's signed, and you have 
two witnesses gotcha. signature. Gotcha. I would take it and get it notarized. Okay. But you don't, it doesn't have to be some drawn out long legalistic process. It's very simple, just writing out what your wishes are. I know I recently did a power of attorney for a family member, and it was just a document that I found online. You can Google search most power of attorneys in that specific state, mm -hmm. and it will give you a basic form that you just fill in, sure. a fillable form. It's, it's not very complicated. I think what happens is People overthink because they believe that it's going to be extremely complicated. And so it's easier to say, you know what, I'm just going to put this off. I'm just going to put this off. I can specifically talk about my mom. My mom passed away in 2014. She had pancreatic cancer. And I started talking to my mom and my dad early on about, hey, y'all need to get a will. We need to do this. We need to do that. Well, my mom died and she didn't have her will put together. Mm -hmm. But it was in, and, and my father was former military. They could go onto the military base and they could have a will drawn up for them at no cost gotcha. from the legal people on the military base. There are usually resources around. I do a lot of tax work. And with that, there are usually like tax clinics. There, there's so much stuff. A lot of times, if you contact, a law school, law schools have legal clinics on almost everything. They may have a property legal clinic. They may have a tax legal clinic. And a lot of times they do work for free because it's students who are over, who are being oversaw by like professors and stuff like that. And so they do the work for free, what we call pro bono work. Yes. There are resources everywhere. People just have to look for them. And a lot of times it's a little overwhelming. And so people just don't do the work. So they just rather not do it. Yeah. And yeah. And I just, you know, I, I think it's, I think that helps just kind of eliminate that. Well, I didn't know. Well, if you, if we give it a shot, like you said, there's a lot of things that, that you can Google to kind of help you know, lead you into the right direction. And then this resource that you, you know, talking about these law clinics, it's like, it's one that's not often shared, especially like working in the field that, that I work in, this public health space. It's just, it's so, so valuable. So one of the last things we can kind of dive into, I kind of want to like, you know, I just wrote, you know, in, in writing down notes, it's, you know, in this country, we, we know the history of it and, and things like that. And it's just like, there's a, I'm seeing that there's a lot of nuance to the law and it doesn't necessarily align with what one person would believe is quote unquote, the moral thing to do. How, mm -hmm. how do we, ex, how do we explain that or process that to maybe help, you know, as we navigate this world, as we navigate what we're, you know, what exists here, you know, and, and, in America, you know, this reality that, you know, law doesn't necessarily have to, you know, equal what one person may consider moral. Like, I mean, that I feel like that's a conversation that, you know, we don't necessarily often have, but we as a community can have these collective opinions on things. And what, is there anything that you could say to that? So... I think what you're talking about is this this great desire, this great need in our country for reform of like our criminal justice system, like our prison systems, and how 
one may look at one set of facts and a person receives one sentence and you look at another set of facts and a person receives a totally different sentence and they look very similar with a few marked differences, maybe the race, maybe the place or the location where things happen. You know, we've had a lot of a lot of stuff has happened over the course of the last couple of years that we've been living in this pandemic. And it has almost been a mirror to the United States mm -hmm. um, that has exposed so much stuff that's been going on for so long. Yeah. But it was easy to be busy and not pay attention. For sure. And all of a sudden, I, I think I use George Floyd as like a turning point where we were smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. People were at home. You weren't going places. So everything was being watched. Yes. And there was video footage of what happened to this poor man. And it was undeniable. Yeah. And it started a lot of conversations. It started a conversation I know amongst my friends about white privilege. I grew up in a, I'm an army brat. So I grew up in a military community. I have a lot of friends of every different race. And I know a lot of my friends reached out to me and they said, I never knew about this white privilege thing. And I guess this is something that I've been living with and I just never knew. Uh -huh. um, and so I think, I think the way that we get to a place where things seem more equal, mm -hmm. things seem more balanced, is that conversations have to happen. So for so long, things were just swept under the rug and weren't talked about. I know now that there is a lot of talk even about critical race theory. Yes. And whether or not that should be taught in schools. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a strong fraction of people who don't think that that should be taught. But it is the history of this country. Yeah. It is the history of this country. And I, I, saw, I saw something very powerful on social me media, and I believe it was the little girl, Ruby Bridges, and she was being walked and escorted in by police. And it was talking about critical race theory. And it said, the reason that your grandparents don't want to talk about this is because they don't want you to see that they were the ones spitting on this little girl Absolutely. and throwing stuff at this little girl. Yeah, I saw that. And, and so I think that we have to get to a point where we talk about stuff yeah. and we're able to talk about it in a very intellectual way and take the emotion out of it. Because once you bring the emotion in, it kind of gets a little clouded. You have to be able to talk to it, talk about it very intellectually. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think that makes change is that people have to be willing to serve. And, and you ask, what does that mean? And I'm going to tell you, you have to vote. You can't say that oh, well, this election doesn't mean anything. You have to vote. And I, I was talking to my nephew, who's 21 years old, the other day, and I said, and voting is not just voting in the presidential election That's every right. four years. That's right. As a matter of fact, these local elections hold more weight for what happens to you personally mm -hmm. than the presidential elections. But you have to be willing to vote, regardless of whether or not you think there's a great candidate Pick the best one for yourself. And I, I, I don't, I, I never, I never try to tell anybody how to vote. I just say, go vote. I think that you have to serve when you get that jury summons. 
And I can't tell you how many people, black and brown people, mm-hmm. who I hear saying, I'm going to get out of this jury summons. I got this jury summons. I'm going to get out of it. But why? Because then when a jury doesn't look like you and doesn't have people like you on it, you want to talk about how is that a jury of this person's peers? But were you willing to serve? That's a great point. Were you willing to serve? Back to the election part of it. When you think about the district attorney's office and they're the ones who actually bring charges and they're the ones that can give plea deals and they're the ones that can determine who gets tried and who doesn't get tried. Mm-hmm. That person is typically elected. That's usually an elected position. That's when right. you think of police chiefs and stuff like that, those are usually appointed, but it's appointed by somebody who was elected. So there's there's an there's a cycle here that we have to break. And that is not being an active part of the process, but then complaining about the process. You don't have a right to complain about the process if you haven't done your part. I have a really good friend Mm -hmm. and her husband for the first time in his entire life, and this man's almost 50 years old, voted this last presidential election. And it was only because his daughters who are grown now or, you know, high school age or whatever, were like, why aren't you voting? Why aren't you voting, daddy? It's important. Yeah. So we have to we have to make some we have to make changes. And I understand people saying that I don't see a good alternative. I, I don't like either candidate. So I just didn't vote. But you do yourself a disservice. People fought for our rights to vote. People died for our rights to vote. Mm-hmm. And so when you don't do that, it's hard then to complain about the disparity in sentencing and the disparity in how we get um, convicted, because a lot of that deals with how elections work and who's in position. Um, yeah, and I, and I think with that being said, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, like you said, you talked about the importance of elections, and, you know, one of the terms that was heard throughout the pandemic, I mean, even, you know, there are states, for example, such as Wisconsin, that has declared like racism a public health crisis. So and then, you know, with systemic oppression, you know, there are ways to get rid of that. And, and it, you know, history shows that nothing happens overnight, but folks being, you know, having certain positions to create different outcomes. I mean... I, I happen to be fortunate enough to talk to like a lot of amazing folks such as yourself that like, you know, we can operate within these positions and we ourselves are part of the change. Exactly. Doing what we do and, you know, you know, doing it how we do it. I, you know, I know there's a lot of different viewpoints on things that some folks sit on the spectrum of abolish it all. And some folks sit on the this, this side of the spectrum, like you're just talking about vote. Some folks feel like, hey, don't change anything at all. I think, you know, I like the piece that you spoke about also just about, it's not that your emotions are not valid, but having a logical conversation just allows for that thought to go back and forth to, to get closer and closer to a solution. Oh, exactly. Like I said, I, I you know, 
it's, I say this all the time, until something affects you personally, a lot of times you don't think about it. So for example, for me, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2013. I didn't know anything about pancreatic cancer, but I learned a lot quickly. Yeah. In 2003, my sister was diagnosed with MS. I didn't know a lot about multiple sclerosis, but I've learned a lot about it because it's something that affected my family. Yeah. So a lot of times we're hands off <laughs> until it affects us personally. And then we want to fight for it. Gotcha. But the, 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 what we have to do is we got to get into the fight before it affects us personally to build a better future for our sons and our daughters. Yeah. I, I, I really like that. And, you know, that's what this whole platform is about. Like, you know, like pushing and fighting for equity across the board, you know, whether that be in the classroom, the boardroom, walking down the street, jogging, sitting in the park, just equity overall. And it, it happens with, you know, every piece of change is a part of the change. So I just really, really appreciate you kind of sharing it from that perspective. Any last things that, you know, that you want to leave us with as we bring this podcast to a close? No, I, you know, what I will say is that I think that me becoming an attorney was very purposeful for me. I have been able to do a lot of good things. Like I said, from working as a public defender to doing the tax law stuff that I do right now, I've had an opportunity to speak to several people in situations like this with your podcast, to do trainings for people on different wills and trust and and in in basic know your rights types of situations. For sure. I think I think that the key is that we educate ourselves mm -hmm. and we have more knowledge. And one of the things that my law school at Thurgood Marshall School of Law, we they always talked about take it, protect it, and pass it on. And I think that's that's very important that when you get the knowledge that you don't hoard the knowledge. Sometimes we tend to get this crabs in a barrel mentality, mm -hmm. but that doesn't do us good for the greater good, for one person to have this knowledge and just to hoard it. So it's important that we pass the knowledge on and that we're willing to be a mentor for other people. I think that all of the professionals in, the, I, I think that every professional should, should do some type of mentorship. Mm. Um, there's a lot of different organizations you can do mentoring mentorship through. Mm -hmm. But I think that every professional should be a mentor. And specifically, I think you have to go into these communities, these underserved communities where people don't see a lot, where there is gangs and there is drugs and there is gun violence and show people a different way. Yeah. Because if I grow up in a community and that's all that I ever see, that's all that I ever witnessed, how the heck am I supposed to know that there's something different? That's true. Absolutely. How am I supposed to know that there's something different? There's another option for me. And so for so many times, I think that we get information and then we get tunnel vision and we're so caught up in what's going on in our own lives that we forget about the people who poured into us. And we forget to pour into others. Yeah, I, 
I really like that. And that's, you know, I, I, I'm going to share that with, you know, with my kids. Take it, protect it, and pass it on. That That's that's very, very uh, powerful. Yeah, I just, again, wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast and just educating us and giving us a little bit more information and just a few different, you know, perspectives and about what it takes from, you know, like you said, setting ideas of what you want to do, having that family support, being disciplined, and always being open to putting in the work, you know, to, to achieve what you want. So again, thank you for joining us and thank you all for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for more. And you've been listening to Adult Public Health Podcast with love, respect, and advocacy. Peace.